Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Dasha Hugh. I am Josh Hallman. Please subscribe to the podcast. We have some really cool guests coming up that we're really excited about, and you don't want to miss out on any of those. And the only way, only way, is to subscribe. That's or it. follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but if you'd rather DM us with questions or topic suggestions or just, you know, want to hang out with us virtually, you can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com, which is all spelled out, or on our Instagram and Twitter at act2writers. I'm also on the things. I'm Story Thursday on Instagram and Tasha 3.0 on Twitter. And I am Josh Hallman on Instagram, Joshua Hallman on Twitter. All right. Before we do anything, including this week in writing, you know how they always have subscription boxes for everything? Like every weird thing that you could possibly love, they now have a subscription box for. And they finally have one for screenwriters, and it is called Storier. And Josh and I got a couple subscription boxes that we wanted to share with you all because it's pretty cool. Are we going to talk about what's in them right now? Are we I doing feel this? like I just like want to get into it because I've like been saving it. I haven't really looked through it because I was saving it for this moment. Okay, let's do it. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my box and it feels like Christmas and I'm sorry you can probably hear it me opening it. But Oh, you actually have your box still. I have my box. Yes. It's a... It's cool. Yeah. Okay. So come. mine comes with this cool card. That's awesome. Did yours I... come with this card? Okay. Yeah, so it does. This card says Horror Night. And it is a horror-themed box, which is really cool. Um, so it has a list on the back of this card that has all the things that are in the box. So there's a complete script for a 12-hour shift. So you can read the script. It says, read the script, turn down the lights, and then watch the movie on hulu which Mm. is great because we always are talking about that right read the script then watch the movie see the differences so that's really cool um there's this cool pen which is like super up my alley of this like cool dragon they call it a gothic pen it's really i'm gonna use that right now um they have these cool writing gloves i guess when it gets cold if you don't live in los angeles um (laughs) with like skulls on them which is also very tasha and it has a thumb thing so like you can oh my god wait these are the best these are writing gloves because you can still use your fingers through them dude this seems like it's tailored for you i know that's weird okay and then i hoped this was chocolate but it's it's a candle (laughs) 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 it's a black candle Set the mood by lighting your vampire tears bleeding taper candle. Jesus. So there's that. But okay, getting to the real meat of why this is a screenwriting box. I think the thing, the common thing that Storyer has in all of them is like kind of a little pouch where they give you these like little cards, right? Like yours just probably comes with a different one, Josh. Yeah. But mine is writing horror and it's like a a card with three holes punched out so I could put it in a binder and it just has some helpful tips and tricks for how to write horror. Like for example, mine your fears. What are you most afraid of? Dig deep into your own fears and nightmares and exploit them. Another one, subvert expectations and a whole thing about that. So it's like just like a general kind of card to think about when you're writing horror, which I think is kind of interesting. And then 
complete the career challenge and enter to win a mini career coaching coaching session. Just that's pretty neat. Um, so there's a little card, like a postcard in here. With who? Where, Are you going to be the career coach? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm qualified for that. That's what we do here on the podcast, <laughs> career coach. <laughs> wow, we're doing an unboxing. This is so exciting. This is exciting. Yeah, so it's a little, yeah, you write a little statement about why you write. It takes me back to all the applications I used to do, and I did all the contests and stuff, and then you could win a career coaching session. So there's also a coupon for 30% off of Final Draft, which is amazing. And wow. then they have this invitation. I missed it because I didn't unbox this in time because I was saving this, but there's a, an invitation for a live Q&A with the creators of 12 hour shift, the script that they included. So oh. theoretically, if I had done this on time, I could have logged onto the special website that they give you and actually join a moderated Q and A of the script that I would have read because of this box and then yeah. watch the movie on Hulu. So like it's all connected, which is really cool. I should, I should also say like each box is a different theme. Maybe you already said that. So you have the horror box. I have the horror box. Yeah. They even have a little QR code at the bottom that allows me to find a writing horror Spotify playlist. So damn, I mean, it's a whole it's a whole deal. Gets you in the mood. <laughs> yeah, what's yours? My box was the Fatal Flaws, and it's it's it's, it's got a thing uh, that comes in. It talks about characters, and then it has a little breakdown of different characters and what show they're on and what their fatal flaw is. It comes with a little notepad about crafting characters, and it kind of helps you oh. out. So if I have a character named Wait, Tasha. Wait, can I see it? I know no one else who's listening yeah, can sure. see no, it. Yeah, sure. No, it's perfect for a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> so you can kind of like fill it out and like just tear tear it away. Yeah. It's kind of like a note. Exactly. And sticky you, note thing. A little sticky note thing. And then there's also a um, uh, like a, a career challenge where you identify your own fatal flaw. There's oh. a voodoo pin Ooh. holder. Ooh. And- what I think actually, not saying the other things aren't really helpful, but um, there's like a negative trait thesaurus. Ooh. And in this is, you know, you can flip to a different trait that says something like, you know, humorless. And then mm -hmm. you go to that page and it talks about that character, breaks down that character, and it just kind of, help, kind of helps you build your own character, I would imagine. Can I have it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's really great. These are, I, I feel like this, you know, helpful. All right, can I do my, can I do my next box? Oh, that's right. You have two. I do. That's right. Okay, okay, okay. This one is crafting your log lines. And this one comes with a genuine leather pencil case. Like, you know, in The Mummy, when Brendan Fraser steals the tool, the tool case from the, the other American guy and gives it I to think, Rachel Weiss. Yeah, I, I'm it's in my mind often. It's like it looks like that. Yeah. But for writers, because you can put your pens in it. Um, <laughs> another Q&A thing that I also didn't get in time. There's a, a you know, hotels when you like, I don't want the maid service to come. So there's like a door thing you can hang on your on your door that's like, do not disturb me, I'm writing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the coolest thing I think is it comes with this little game, which is a log line generator deck, which we will definitely be using for our next idea generation night for act two. 
God dang. But like, so it has these instructions. Okay, I'm going to try it. So it has like protagonist cards in here. It's like a deck of cards. Protagonist cards, goal cards, obstacle cards, situation cards, and world cards. And if you kind of like shuffle them all together and pick them at random, you can come up with a log line to brainstorm. So I'm going to try it. Okay. While celebrating their 60th birthday, a happy-go-lucky coroner seeks to reclaim a lost fortune only to discover they have been illegally cloned after an environmental catastrophe. I'd see it. <laughs> it's an apocalypse sci-fi uh, movie starring, I was going to say Clint Eastwood, he's in his 80s. Damn. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's really cool. So that's 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 creating a log line. I like it. So we're going to talk later on at the end of the show about ways to get a hold of your own box. We're going to have a special giveaway for our listeners to grab one of these boxes, um, which are pretty cool. And by the way, we weren't forced into saying this stuff. It is actually really cool. We we took a <laughs> no, look. No at one's the boxes. paying us to do this. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. We took a look at them and it was like, you know what? It's good enough for the podcast. And it's created by an actual screenwriter. She's a, you know, she's a TV writer who is active in the business right now and saw a need for these kinds of subscription boxes. Because like I said, there's one for everyone. Mm -hmm. so why does someone who can, who builds Lego get one? And then we don't as screenwriters. Now we do. Some That's bullshit. what I'm saying. All right. Let's move on. This week in writing, Joshua, I'm very excited for, for yours because yeah. I don't know what it is, Yeah, but you seem excited. I am excited because every week I come in here and I'm like, you know, I ate a lot of pretzels and like I don't have like a legit <laughs> this week in writing. <laughs> <laughs> so this week I actually have a this week in writing. Are you ready right. for it? I'm so ready. So I've been doing some revisions on something that I've been doing revisions on for far too long and I've kind of been starting, stopping, starting, stopping and it's really hard for me to kind of get going again because I have to get my brain in the right spot. And I was doing a pass and I ended up blowing things up like in the script where I was like, oh God, I'm just going to blow this up and see what happens. I'm just going like full Frankenstein mode on this thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it was kind of working for the better. So what I ended up doing because now I am off of my outline. Like my outline that I had has been cratered because of something that I didn't anticipate. But Ooh. as I was writing the script, I was like, oh, well, this this doesn't make sense. And I'm starting to, I, I realized things were, I was doing things that were a little easy. Like I wasn't challenging hmm. the characters enough because it's one of those scenarios where the characters are smarter than me mm -hmm. and therefore... I'm just like, well, what would I do? I'm like, I would just run for the door. So it has to, <laughs> but it can't be that easy because then the movie would be over. <laughs> so the point being is I've been writing out my script. And then when I get to scenes in final draft, I don't know fully what the dialogue is or what like happens in the scene, but I know what should happen. Mm -hmm. So I've put in John and Olivia must run to the door. And like, I'll just insert that. And then I'll also put what is kind of supposed to happen throughout the scene, like the arc of the scene. And then I move on to like a scene that I can actually write because mm -hmm. there's holes throughout the script. Mm -hmm. So this is all to say, I am writing a script while inserting like outline broad strokes 
and writing at the same time. Does that oh, make wow. sense? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking weird. Have I mean, you I, gone back yet to one of those sections that you only kind of summarized and mm -hmm. written it out yet? Yeah. How did that go? Was it? It went well. Yeah? Yeah. It was just more or less like a placeholder of like, this is what needs to happen. This is what happens to the characters. And it's a weird script meets outline. Mm -hmm. And because of the revisions that I've been doing, I'm in kind of some uncharted territory here. Yeah. So I'm figuring out as I go. Yeah. I bet that's a super helpful if you have to write under the gun, if you're on mm -hmm. TV or if you're writing a, a movie that like you just have to get done. Because mm -hmm. I am definitely the kind of writer who if I get to a scene I can't write, I, I, I everything stops. I have to figure that scene out until I yeah. can continue. So me too. But I have found that I'm like, okay, wait a minute. If they, I know it has to sort of happen here, like what I think could happen here. I just don't know how the scene looks. And there's, I happen to be writing something where there's all these characters moving and it's just like so many different moving parts that if mm -hmm. I stop, I literally forget the moving parts and I have yeah. to reread like the last 30 pages just to get my head yeah. back into the, the momentum. It's so interesting. It reminds me actually, A, like that's such a huge skill, I think, to foster the ability to move on, come back to it. And and as you kind of said, like Frankenstein it in a way, um, rather than what I do, which is get caught up on things, because I was just having a conversation with a producer who was talking specifically about writers that he felt could take a movie to the distance, writers that he felt could, in a very economical way, get an idea or a draft ready to be greenlit that they could trust. And it's very hard to find that. You often find writers who can be very good, mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean they can write a script that they can then greenlight. Um, there's just, and we can talk about that on another episode, but what the difference is between those two things. And he was just saying how hard it is to find someone who can take a movie to the distance. And part of that, and what the conversation I was having specifically with him today was about, was they needed a draft of something really, really quick because the actor who's available for it is available in a very short window, which is like the fall and winter of this coming year. So oh. they need someone to write something like super, super quick right now. And he's like, I don't know who can do that. <laughs> I, I need a writer who is economical, who can write that way. And that to me just speaks to another aspect of what it means to be a professional screenwriter versus just someone who writes. That for sure. 100% makes sense. That's good. I can't wait for that episode. Yeah. I, I hope his, his like thing about who can take it to the, the finish line is like people who write, you know, broad strokes in an outline form in the script <laughs> cannot take a script to the finish line. <laughs> Whoever that guy is, not capable. <laughs> Never want to talk to him. Oh, man. So that's my This Week in Writing, Tasha, while I All take right. a sip of my ZOA energy I drink. That. I'm feeling great. <laughs> You look a little jittery. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm feeling amazing right now. <laughs> All right. I have a This Week in Writing. Bring it. Um, so this last weekend, I hosted a roundtable with about, what, like seven other writers who came in, and we just kind of brainstormed something. And it was very interesting because... I felt like I had imposter syndrome, like I have no business being at the head of this table. And then afterwards, found out from several writers who wrote me after the weekend 
and said that they also had imposter syndrome. And I was like, wait, we can't all have imposter syndrome. Someone has to belong here, right? And Whoa. turns out we all belong there. We just all don't feel like we belong there. And I just want to share that because I know that probably all of you out there feel <laughs> imposter. I was going to say some of you, but I'm pretty sure all of you feel imposter syndrome. And it was just really helpful for me to know that I wasn't the only one. Wow. That's all. That's beautiful. I won't make any comments on that. Okay. Oh boy. Okay. That's <laughs> moving on. All right. So today's topic. <laughs> One of Josh and I's favorite things to do is kind of nerd out about how people set up their heroes and villains. And mm. we've talked about doing kind of a whole series where we talk about some of the great villains and heroes in film and television and break down how they're introduced and why we love them and why they work and all of that. Just kind of break down the writing mechanics of it all. So Today, we're kind of just dipping our toes into the water of that series and see how it feels, right? We're yeah. going to talk about one of our favorite heroes and one of our favorite villains and break down a little bit of how and why they work. But can I just say, before we do that, can I read you something that I saw on Twitter about this very topic today? And oh, just yeah. See what you think. Oh, my God. Yeah. I love, <laughs> I love when Twitter gets involved. <laughs> All right, this comes from David H. Steinberg, who wrote No Good Nick on Netflix and Kindergarten Cop 2. Interesting. So this is what David had to say today. He said, I think the hardest aspect of writing is creating memorable, bigger-than-life characters who also seem real. Michael Scott, Fleabag, Ted Lasso. The mistake, I think, is to start too small push the envelope, then pull them back to reality. Easier than going from boring to exciting. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Start big, pull back. Because yeah. then you establish anything as possible. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because like, I feel like I almost have the opposite inclination sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think I suffer from a problem of being too subtle, certainly, often, where, like, like I've definitely written characters where the note I got back was, why do I care about this person? <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's like, you will. It's like, yeah, but I don't right now. So right. how do you fix that? And the answer really has been, for me, to really just intro your character in the strongest way possible which maybe sounds obvious, strongest way possible, and then do all of the fun character work that's a little maybe slower and, and takes its time after you've done something, as David says, that's um, pushing the envelope. Yeah. I was actually thinking about a version of this today with my hero and my villain, and I kind of was thinking that's very hard to do, to like to intro your character in the best possible ways obviously easier said than done but it also kind of requires you to intro them in their environment and kind of how the movie is going to be and mm -hmm. i'm going to put a pin in that because i have a very mm -hmm. specific example specific example of uh well i guess with my villain maybe both but definitely yeah. uh, my villain is it kind of sets the tone it's like his intro is yeah and his character is how the movie is I love this topic. Okay. does it, Can you go first then? Because I want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. Well, should I do my hero first? Or should I do my villain first? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. 
hero. Oh, hero. Okay. Oh, unless your villain, unless your villain is the one where we can talk about that idea. It kind of is. Dude, villain. Fuck. I'm going backwards. Okay. My villain, Tasha, that I chose from a long list of villains in yeah. cinematic history. Oh. <laughs> I narrowed it down to one. Wait, can not, I guess? I guarantee you're not going to guess who it is. Oh, okay. But go for it. Who do you think it is? I was going to say Biff, but... Oh, I should have done Biff. If I can't guess, then... (laughs) I'm going to on the fly do Biff right now. (laughs) On the Uh, fly! (laughs) Okay, sorry. um, It's actually Denzel in Training Day. Okay. I have a feeling you haven't seen Training Day. Uh, How did you know? (laughs) I just... When I was writing this, I thought to myself, Tasha hasn't fucking seen Training Day. (sighs) I haven't seen Training Day. Hmm. Okay. So I'll learn something with you. Okay. So first of all, the in my opinion, and I, I think this is not like some like controversial statement I'm I'm saying here, but like the best villains are the ones who like legitimately feel like they're the good guys mm-hmm. in their story. And again, going this is like very, very hard to do, you know? And mm-hmm. I feel like Oftentimes, when you meet villains in movies, you kind of know they're the villain. But in the case of Training Day, you're not 100% sure where Denzel falls because Mm -hmm. it's kind of this – it's not a buddy movie by any stretch, but it's these two guys who go on a training day. They're two LA cops. Denzel's the seasoned vet, and then you have Ethan Hawke, who is like the fresh-faced new guy who comes along. You know the general premise of Training Mm -hmm. Day, right? Okay. So the intro of Denzel. We meet him inside of a diner and he sits down with Ethan Hawke and Ethan Hawke kind of sits, he sits across from him and they're, they're seated there. And this intro kind of is the theme of training day because Alonzo Denzel, he always needs to be in control. So when you meet him, he's sitting down, he's reading a newspaper. Ethan Hawke's like, Hey, how you doing? And Denzel's like, fuck off. I'm reading my newspaper. Doesn't even look up. He doesn't doesn't do anything. He just kind of keeps reading. The waitress comes by. Denzel orders for him. He's like trying to take control instantly wow. mm-hmm. of Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke just kind of keeps sitting there and he's a little bit of a nuisance. Denzel finally is like, all right, dude. He puts his newspaper down. He's like, tell me a story. Just tell me a story. I read the newspaper for stories. The newspaper's 90% bullshit. Why don't you bullshit me and tell me something good that I need to know? And he, it's just off the bat, he starts poking Ethan Hawke. So Ethan Hawke, he goes into this story. He He's telling the story about like, oh, when I was on this one DUI, this and this and this, I my partner was a female cop. And, and Denzel's like, oh, that's awesome. How did she look? And you can't really get a read on Denzel this entire time. And he starts asking her like, so what's she like? What's this, this, this? So then Denzel finishes, or uh, Ethan Hawke finishes the story and Denzel's just kind of looking at him like, that's your best fucking story. Like that's the biggest waste of time. I thought you were going to tell me you were sleeping with this cop in like the back seat. This is yeah. like, what are you doing? So that was all to say like that intro is pretty much what the movie is. It's mm. these two guys that are together verbally going back and forth. Denzel's testing Ethan Hawke the entire time. And you just get a sense of what the movie is going to be from that moment on. Mm-hmm. So that's full circle mm-hmm. to kind of that point that was made a little earlier. Yeah. I love that. And I think that is so important. And you and I had this huge conversation when we were talking about Tomb Raider um, of like, how do you intro something, someone who's so iconic and like get a sense of the tone 
the character, the story you're about to set up. Like you have to do actually so much work when you first intro either your hero or your big villain, because Mm -hmm. you're right. Like it has to embody sort of everything that your movie is if you're doing it well. Yeah. And it's very hard to do. Like in this opening scene, he kind of, you know, he's playing with them. And at one point you're like, oh my God. And it's also Denzel. So he's so charismatic and charming. And so there's Mm -hmm. that element of the, of everything. But even the way it's written, it's like, it's going back and forth. And then he just belittles them. He's like, really, man? Like, I just wasted my fucking time. Get in the fucking car. Let's go. Yeah. Um, I didn't do a good Denzel impersonation right there. But just imagine that as a really if engaging scene. you could scene. do a Denzel impersonation on the fly, yeah, I would, I'd close the podcast because I'd be like so impressed that I would, I'd like need a break. Well, I, I you might not know this, but I have my SAG card. <laughs> Are we talking about other things that make the villain the villain? Yeah, like what are other moments okay. in the movie? So there's one moment. This is kind of a very iconic moment, and it sucks you haven't seen this, but... I'm sorry. So they bust some bad guys. They take some narcotics from them, and they, they're they driving. They're a l- it's a little later in the movie, and they're driving around. And Denzel... I'm sorry. It's a little earlier in the movie. And they're driving. Oh, it's before the scene you just pitched? No. No, no, this is after. that. Okay. The scene I just pitched is the first scene in the movie. Okay. But later, not too much later, but when they just start getting to know each other, um, they bust these bad guys, they take some narcotics from them, and then while they're driving, Denzel whips out this crack pipe, and he starts talking about it, and he's like, you know, these bad guys, this, 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 and one thing leads to another, and he tells Ethan Hawke to smoke the crack pipe. And he's like, smoke this crack, basically. And he and Ethan Hawke's like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, no, I'll smoke it. He's like, get the fuck out. I'm not smoking crack. And so it's going back and forth. Mm-hmm. And Denzel ends up manipulating, not manipulating, but pushing him so much after Ethan Hawke keeps saying no, that Denzel's like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, you're going to need this training one day. One day you're going to be in a scenario where you're going to be around some guys. They're going to want to want to see you smoke whatever, and you can't do it. Get the fuck out of my car and go back to the valley. And Ethan Hawke is like, oh my God, fucking, I'm going to smoke the crack pipe. So then he smokes and the day kind of continues. Ethan Hawke's a little cloudy for a little bit of the movie, but why this is important is because later when Denzel's with some corrupt, corrupt cops and Ethan Hawke is like, bro, I'm turning you in. Denzel's like, I'm going to ask them to check your blood, man. Like there's narcotics in your blood. Who the fuck do you think they're going to believe? Mm-hmm. And so that's another version. Oh, like shit. This manipulation. Right. Is there a sense that Denzel did that on purpose, like waiting for that moment? Or No, just- not in the moment. Like, it all makes sense. This is what's so great about it is like in the moment, you're like, oh, man, yeah, smoke, smoke the pipe. It makes sense because you're yeah. like Denzel's making a ton of sense. He's that kind of bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then like just to jump ahead because not to talk too long about this, but then like the big thing is. Denzel literally leads him into a group of people later in the movie that are there to kill Ethan Hawke. And Denzel's with them. He's like, come on, man, let's play some cards. I'll be right back. I'm going to go see this this lady in the back or whatever. And he just leaves them to die. But uh, Ethan Hawke gets out of it, Tasha. And I'm not going to tell you how. You need to see this movie. I know. The reason why I didn't see it, by the way, is because I was in a place where I didn't want to see anything that was like difficult or depressing. I just yeah. wanted to see like Disney shit. It was just like it came out at just a time in my life. And then the time went and passed and yeah. now I'm ready for that stuff. And it just feels like I have so many other things to watch now. 
Should we talk about that on the next podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Yes. All right. You go and do a hero. We need some like uplifting things here. All right. So I'm doing Rick O'Connell played by Brendan Fraser in The Mummy. The man. And when I speak of The Mummy, I speak of Mummy 1 and I speak of Mummy 2. I speak of no other mummies. Wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I love this character because I feel like nobody tried to make him Indiana Jones, which feels like the natural thing someone would try to do, given that is our most iconic adventure hero. But Brendan is a different kind of hero. He's a little goofy. He's also a criminal in this movie. He kind of has no problem laughing at himself and others. But he can also back that up with some serious like bravery and badassery, which is why I love about why I love him. So what I want to do is talk about moments in Act One that make his character work in the actual writing of it. So mm. when we first meet Rick O'Connell. He is kind of holding the line of soldiers at some Egyptian ruins against an army that's on horseback. And everyone, all of his guys are looking really nervous, but O'Connell just stares straight ahead with that kind of square, like square Captain America jaw. And he just seems like a really confident leader. And you get this sense that Rick's side is the underdog side, especially they start getting slaughtered fairly quickly by this mounted army that's coming. So automatically everyone loves an underdog. You're just kind of already on his side. Yeah. Now, as guys are dying all around him, O'Connell's like emptying out all of his guns. And it's kind of this fun moment where he's like grabbing more guns and it's kind of badass, but also funny. And then out of bullets, he sees his buddy, Benny running for safety and he tells Benny keep running run run and he's so he's helping out his buddy Benny so you also show that he's a good confident leader who cares about his men but then Benny gets into a safe room and closes the door on O'Connell so now O'Connell's care for other people has been misplaced Mm. and that makes me care about him even more because this good guy just got screwed And you always care about the good guy who got screwed. Yeah. Now, I feel like in the writing, they could easily have had him just join Benny in the safe room at this moment. But that's not a better character setup beat. Although, to be fair, they maybe only did this because they needed the plot point that comes after it, which is that they (laughs) needed O'Connell to like run to this outdoor statue of Anubis. He has nowhere else to go. He's hemmed in by the bad guys when suddenly the bad guys freak out and they run off, leaving O'Connell to have this kind of weird supernatural moment under the statue of Anubis where we get to see this face in the sand. So technically he needed to be locked out for that beat to work. But the lesson is, I think having someone screw your hero over, especially in a setup, can be a really great way to get the audience to care about them. Because now Mm. I'm like, fuck Benny. I hope O'Connell survives and I hope O'Connell gets back at Benny. Like I'm just immediately rooting for him, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's nice. That's good. Yeah, it's good. It's great. All right. Then the next time we meet O'Connell, he's in jail and he looks beat to shit. We actually see him getting beaten by guards who interestingly, we don't see the guards' faces like really at all. So they're meant to just be these kind of general bad guys. We're not supposed to like them. And 
we of course don't like bad guys are beating up on someone. So I'm automatically like, okay, I like the person who's getting beat up. The icing on the cake of the moment though, is like, as he gets beaten up, he kind of takes it like a champ. Like he gets Mm -hmm. a serious blow and he just kind of like, he just kind of like stings a little bit, but that's it. Like that's the only reaction you get out of him, which is just pretty cool. Mm. And for me, like I started thinking about some tendencies writers have including myself sometimes is to show our characters really suffering under the hand of a villain in order to kind of try to force or squeeze empathy out of your audience for them but i think of course depending on your character but you can actually do the opposite and your audience will love them even more and i think one of the the bigger times that i really recall is in the james bond movie don't know which one it was at this point um (laughs) where he's naked in a chair and with like no bottom do you remember that And he's like tied to it of course and he's like getting his balls bashed in right (laughs) he just sits there he just sits there and he like winces a little but his like shoulders are tall and that's just such a really cool hero moment so that's (laughs) a much goofier version (laughs) for (laughs) o'connell can i just say that i also love when heroes aren't phased by the villain Yeah. And it has to make sense, though, for the hero. Yeah. Yeah, the ball ball is getting bashed in is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Where you're like, wow, he's not showing any pain. (laughs) Yeah, he's such a badass in that moment. Oh, man. So good. Man, should have done Bond. No. Okay, O'Connell's the best. All right. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And then (laughs) you get O'Connell in this really, like, haggard, wild state, which I think is really fun because then – He's immediately juxtaposed with like Evelyn and Jonathan who come to visit him in his cell, who are these really uptight Brits, which makes us like O'Connell even more in that moment because he has this really emphasized devil may care swagger to him simply because they're juxtaposing him with uptight Evelyn and Jonathan, which I think is great. Yes. And then you get the great O'Connell beat shortly after that where evie is boarding the boat for their adventure and she's trash talking how horrible o'connell is after meeting him in jail he's a complete scoundrel and of course brendan shows up with his like fury haircut before it was cool Mm. and he's super sexy and dashing and evie can't stop looking at him and it's just like this really fun reveal that i think also does nice character work that this man is equally that haggard wild guy in the in the jail as he is this kind of dashing guy which is just a really cool combo to have yeah and then i'm gonna end with there are a few moments on the boat as they're traveling to their location that you could really pick apart and go on forever but one that i always remember and is my favorite is that the boat is under attack and he's with evie Rachel Weiss, and their backs are up against a wall and they're being shot at. And you can see the bullet holes just kind of exploding in the wood of the wall next to them. And each bullet is getting closer and closer and closer to O'Connell. And O'Connell's not moving. He isn't even paying it. He's not even looking up at at the person firing. You don't even see the person who's firing. Mm -hmm. All O'Connell is doing, he's just reloading his gun and he seems like mostly unconcerned. In fact, Evie at the end has to like yank him to the side to avoid his face getting shot off. And for me, that was always such a really great moment that showed how brave he was, kind of a bit crazy brave, which is even more fun. Also shows his confidence and his know-how of this dangerous situation. He knew those bullets weren't going to hit him. But you also needed someone to pull him out because he's also a little bit messy. He's not perfect, which is also a really cool character trait of Brendan specifically in this movie. So those were sort of the 
kind of iconic moments to me in the setup that did a really great job at establishing character pretty quickly. I, I have nothing else to say. That was perfect. <laughs> I want to buy this movie right now. How do you not already have it? Let's go. Mummy I, Marathon. I was actually, th- as you were, honestly, as you were saying this, I was getting excited and I was like, what a fucking badass Brendan Fraser is in that movie. So badass. He's so great. I think what you said is is like spot on because that kind of character is is Indiana Jones in a certain mm-hmm. way, but it's not. He's his own thing and mm-hmm. they did a really good job of separating him. I think they did. Yeah. You convinced me. Yeah. Should I do my hero? Let's go. Okay. Captain Jack Sparrow, Tasha. All right. Were you a fan of Jack Sparrow at the time? Hell yeah. Johnny Depp? Absolutely. Okay. I just felt like he, like, to not be a fan of Jack Sparrow at that time is just crazy. That'd be weird. I've never met weird. a single person that like that. Yeah. No, me neither. So I don't typically like pirate movies, Tasha. I don't like hmm. pirates. For some, oh. I mean, like movies on the wide open sea are, mm. they have to be really good for me to be completely engaged. And okay. so the first pirate movie I love a lot. <laughs> um, and Jack Sparrow to me is Han Solo on the water. Oh, okay. Okay. And I think that's maybe why I love him. Like he's Han Solo of the open sea. Mm-hmm. And what I really love about him and what they establish really in the first act and with probably in the first 12 minutes of this movie is like, People know who he is. He's feared, but like Johnny Depp and Jack Sparrow is an eccentric character that he's not terrifying. Mm. So he's kind of a villain, but he's a hero, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And so when when we first meet him, iconic opening of any film, in, my, really is. in my opinion here. So when we first meet Jack Sparrow, we see that he's pouring water out of a boat. And we don't really know why. Like his boat's sinking. He's getting water and he's getting more water. And he's not panicked. He's completely calm. And then as he's kind of floating along the ocean, he sees these pirates. They're hanging. He's entering this port where they fucking hate pirates. But again, Jack Sparrow, not worried about it. He (laughs) takes his hat off. He shows some respect. He kind of gives a nice little salute to the pirates. And then we see this sign that says, pirates be warned. He has a nice little like wry smile and he does the salute. Mm -hmm. His ship keep going down, not concerned. And he comes to a pier. And we pull back and realize that Jack Sparrow is basically standing on the top of his ship. And he very casually, in just the nick of time, walks right off, right onto the pier, and he just starts walking. Where a man runs up to him and he says, sir, you need a shilling and I need your name in order for you to dock here. And it's kind of a comedic moment because you see that, you know, the boat is completely submerged under the water and it's kind of funny. Sparrow says, well, why don't I give you three shillings with no name? And the person was like, welcome. And so he takes the three uh, shillings and then Sparrow walks off. But as he walks off, he sees a bag, a little pocket, a little pouch full of shillings. And then Jack Sparrow steals it. And then he walks into the town. And I feel like that setup is everything that we need to know about Captain Jack Sparrow. It's so true. Oh, it's so good. It is just so great. And that's also another thing. Like he's trying to get his boat back. And right off the bat, this sets the tone of like, what the movie's about. He's in a sinking boat and yeah. he's in anyway. So you learn everything oh, you need to so learn. so good. How awesome it's, is that? It's like one of the best intros to a character I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I completely agree. A couple more moments, Tasha. His fight with Will Turner, if you remember this in the opening. Mm-hmm. He's a swordsman. Oh, yeah, he's a marksman. Great. This This is like an insane sword fight. And the entire time that he's having this fight, we realize he's very capable 
and the fight's incredible. He's a marksman. He can handle anybody with a sword, which is really cool because that's now like a new trait that we learned about him. Mm-hmm. Another moment, a little like this is all within like the first, like I said, first act of the movie. When he's caught, again, he's cool and calm under pressure. And people know who he is. And I think that's really cool because like, you know, it's just, it's really, I think, interesting when people know who your hero is, Mm -hmm. much like Han Solo. And he finds himself in what would be like a impossible escape. And Jack Sparrow gets out at one point. He's like, it's hard to explain, but he like shoots something, slides something up. He swings away. He's like, you'll never forget who Jack Sparrow is. Like, you'll never forget the name Jack Sparrow. Another very important moment, which I should have said before the last moment, was he saves Keira Knightley. Mm-hmm. If you remember, she falls off into the water and no one's saving no her. No one will, yeah. And he's like, oh, fuck. Okay. Hands over all this stuff, including his gun, including his sword, and yeah. he dives in the water and he saves her, which could so be good. another plot moment, but it turns out to be a very important uh, character and moment for the plot because he, that's when he sees the little thing around that's her neck. That's right, yeah. So good. So that's it. A combo of those things. is I mean, even just the three things of like the intro, the sword fight, and then saving her. Those mm-hmm. three things alone tell a complete narrative of your hero. Mm-hmm. And it kind of lines up to some of the things you just said about the mummy in the sense of how he acts on like when he's around the villain, when he's around mm-hmm. a bad guy. He's not phased. Mm-hmm. He's kind of always looking for a way out. He's his own version of that character. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is fucking great. And I love how you articulated too that the whole intro of the flooding boat and him coming to look for a new boat is the theme of the movie. He's trying to get his boat back. That's yeah. I've never like really put those two things together so so kind of one to one like that but absolutely that's the theme of the movie is i need to get my boat back i'm coming in on a sinking boat mm-hmm. to tell you that that's my journey i didn't think about it either until i like rewatched it recently mm-hmm. for this and i was like oh my god this is perfect <laughs> how the yeah. fuck did they do this that's such a good movie we should do a breakdown of that yes 100% in okay Okay. Let's hear your uh, your villain. My villain for today. <laughs> Let's go. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not. The Baroness Rodmilla de Ghent from Ever After, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. No, I'll take that back. It is my favorite movie of all can, time. Can I say something? Yeah. One time we were at something. It might have been for you and Paul. It was at something where one of the questions was, what is Tasha's all-time favorite movie? Or it was like an act two mixer or something. It was Ever After. And in my head at that time, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking win this. Top Top gun. gun. And I wrote that (laughs) shit down so confidently. And then then I was wrong. And I was like, what? And you're like, Ever After. I was like, what is Ever After? (laughs) I'm so glad I was consistent, though. (laughs) I mean, yeah. It's a a rough race between Ever After, Last Crusade, and Top Gun. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Ever After. Baroness Rodmilla de Ghent, played by Angelica Houston. She is one of those villains I really want to be defeated, but also really just want her to go to therapy. Like... (laughs) 
Like you want her to get the help she needs. And that mm. to me is like a sign of a really great villain. <laughs> I love that. So I think what Susanna Grant did so well in this script is that she gave us someone you love to hate, but then surprises us with several moments across the movie where you're like, wait, I understand why this woman is doing what she's doing and that behind all of this cruelty is actually a very scared and sad woman. And then it becomes very hard to be angry and hateful of someone once you see that they're scared and sad. Mm. And I think like Kylo Ren is a really great example. He does some really terrible things, but he really just needs a lot of therapy. Oh. <laughs> All right. So the Baroness, the first time you meet her is when Drew Barrymore's father introduces her to the household. And she has this kind of grand entry into the movie. Have you seen this movie? I have not. Woof. Woof. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um. All right. She. I mean, I haven't seen Training Day, so <laughs> like I'm done. I'm out. I, I, I saw it in your eyes. You're like, should I even continue? <laughs> what is the point? <laughs> all right. She has this grand entry by like stepping out of the carriage, and the way it's shot is it really just tells you everything you need to know about this woman, that she's meticulous, very high born, very sort of careful and judgmental. She clearly looks down her nose at our hero, Danielle. So we're already kind of predisposed to not like her. She's not been mean to anyone so far when you meet her, but she's judging our hero whom we've already grown to love. So we're kind of not on her side. Mm -hmm. But then the very next moment we see the Baroness is when Danielle's father is bidding everyone farewell in the household. He's going on a business trip. And you can tell the Baroness doesn't really like the idea of being left by herself in a house full of strangers, which is actually totally understandable. She has no idea who these people are. And he's just saying, see ya, take care of the house for me. But then as the dad is riding away on his horse, spoiler alert, Joshua, he mm. falls off the horse and has a heart attack and dies mm. right there on the road. And the Baroness and Danielle, our hero, they both run to meet him. And here they are, the two women in this man's life looking over him. They're both crying as he's dying. And the Baroness looks down at him with like genuine love and worry for him. But in the last moment of his life, the dad knows he has only seconds before he dies. And he chooses to spend those last few seconds turning away from the Baroness, looking right at our hero, Danielle, his little girl, and uses the last seconds of his life to tell her that he loves her, oh. not the Baroness. And it's shot and acted so perfectly where Angelica Houston just kind of watches as the dad raises his hand and instead of touching her face, moves to the daughter's face. And Angelica Houston is just like staring across her husband's body at the little girl being loved by him instead of her. And honestly, it's pretty heartbreaking. And then it's so interesting because the, the line she has when the dad finally dies and she's Jeez. like sobbing over his body is don't leave me here. Please don't leave me here. That's what she has to say. So there's a sense that like this man has brought her like away from the world she's used to, which is clearly like aristocratic and yeah. refined to this 
farm in the middle of nowhere and then died. So do I want to write an old version of Ever After that follows the Baroness? Maybe. Wow. <laughs> I actually, point. as you were saying this, I see the Tasha version of this. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. The second and last great moment, I think, that really seals the deal for you of loving the Baroness is when everything is seeming to go really well for her and her plan. Her horrible daughter Wait, might actually marry the prince. Loving the Baroness? Kind Hate. of. Oh, wow. Okay. Loving and hating at the same time. Damn. Because uh, up to this point, like after that first moment where you're like, oh, that's so sad for her. She's just, she's just terrible. And then you get this moment, which is somewhere in sort of the back half of act two, where again, she's been terrible. And then there's this kind of intimate moment where Danielle Drew Barrymore is brushing the Baroness's hair and the Baroness looks at her and is like, hmm, there's like a touching look on her face. And she's like, you look like your father in this moment. And Danielle kind of sees this opportunity and sees the vulnerability in her and like tries to have a conversation about this. Like, did you love my father? And immediately the Baroness just closes up. She's like, oh. shit, like I opened a door and now I'm going to slam it closed. Like, I'm not going to go there. And her next comment is very much what someone who's deflecting and has a hard time with emotions would say, which is, eh, I hardly knew him. But we've already wow. seen it. Like we've already seen the her her guard drop and we get some insight into why she's so obsessed with her horrible daughter marrying the prince. It's because she thought she was going to have this happily ever after with this man. He went and died and left her poor on a farm and she's just trying to pull herself out of this hole. And the mother then tells the story where we get a little more insight into her about how her mother was really, really terrible and sort of taught her all the wrong lessons. So again, it's like kind of this one-two punch of I have trauma, but also all these learned behaviors from my own mother, which is, I think, where the genius works. Because yeah. of course, I don't want her to succeed. I want the hero to succeed, but I do want her to get therapy again. And I think this is what's important because I think writers, and I'm very much including myself in this, we can sometimes give our villains a monologue or a little scene like this where they reveal trauma in their past. And it's our attempt to do just what this movie does, which is to make us think, oh, I really empathize with the villain. I really see where they're coming from. But I think where Ever After succeeds, where others fail, is that this scene is actually driven by our hero, Danielle. Because if Danielle didn't drive these moments in this scene, the Baroness would never have even thought to say these things. Yeah. So if you look at your villain monologue or that vulnerable scene where they're kind of coming out and telling their story, ask yourself, is your villain just using this as an opportunity to talk about themselves? In which case, that's a more cliched version of what this could be. And are there ways to make your hero the one that actually drives the scene? So to be specific about this in particular, like Danielle's face is what prompts the Baroness to say, like, you look so much like your father. There's just a quiet moment where she's just looking at her face. But then Baroness immediately regrets it. And kind of a lesser writer would have just started the monologue there, right? Like based off of you look so much like your father, now I'm going to tell you my story. Mm -hmm. But instead, the Baroness closes up. And it's Danielle who asks the follow-up question, like, did you love my father? So the hero is the one prompting the Baroness to keep talking. And then 
Danielle looks very disheartened when the Baroness is like, eh, I barely knew him. And off Danielle's look of disappointment, the Baroness again reacts by telling this little story, this little tidbit about her own mother from her past. And I think compare that idea to literally any villain monologue from a Bond movie where the only thing that really ever seems to prompt a villain to speak about himself in a Bond movie is James Bond has been brought to him in a room. And that's it. Like Bond did nothing to create the situation so the villain would reveal their story. All he did was get captured and appear. And now the villain wants to tell him things. So I think the way to frame it is when the villain is driving their own monologue scene, switch the POV of that scene. So it's actually the villain and what they're doing and saying that's prompting these moments. That's it. That's my heroes and villains. That's beautiful. I like it. Do you want to see the movie now? I do. You can say no. It's okay. I promise you I do. As I I was thinking about seeing it while you were talking about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you like romantic movies? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm a big time sucker for romantic movies. All right. I love rom-coms. Like one of the most romantic movies ever. Yeah. It depends what kind of romantic it is. Like the notebook and that Channing Tatum one no. with, oh, I was going to say I love those, but. Oh, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good love story. Like this is one that I would be okay with your daughter Amelia seeing. Oh, really? It's a it's a very empowering story about a woman. She don't need no man. Uh, then I'm going to show it to her. Yeah, good. Done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's our first foray into heroes and villains. I thought it was great. I learned so much already. That was great. That was amazing. I'm going to watch The Mummy and I'm going to watch Ever After because of you. I'm going to watch Training Day. Oh, you should watch Training Day. I'll put it on the list. Oh, it's put it, move it up to the list. <laughs> move it up the list a bit. All right. Before we go, we do have our story or box giveaway. So to enter to win a story or box this really cool subscription box for screenwriters. So it's great for up and coming screenwriters. It's great for writers who are just trying to like, you know, always kind of be kind of testing themselves, growing, learning new things. You get free pens. I mean, come on, head over to our Instagram, make sure you follow us on Instagram at act two writers and instructions for how to enter to win will only be on our Instagram. You're going to have to do a whole thing, tag your friend, all the things, but you could win one of these storier boxes on our Instagram. So head over there. All right. Our quote of the day, people are not born heroes or villains. They're created by the people around them. Chris Colfer. Love it. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm on Instagram as Josh Hallman, Twitter, Joshua Hallman. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. 